also want to say this. I have very few original thoughts tonight. Uh, most of what I have, have come from has been from former campus ministers at uh, Appalachian State. Matt Howell, a good buddy of mine, Brian Sorgenfrey, also a campus minister at Mississippi State. These guys are wonderful, and I just uh, I have really been value, valued their, their work in this passage. So I need to give credit where credit is due. Well, I can tell you that when you get to be my age, I'll be 40 in September. Uh, you get to spend your money on a lot of fun things. Uh, like, for example, uh, when your dryer and washing machine go out right before Christmas, you get to go drop close to a grand right when you want to buy Christmas presents for all your family and friends on a new washer and dryer. Yes, that is what happened to us this past Christmas. I was very upset by that because I am a cheapskate and I don't like spending money. And so we began to go around to these different, uh, you know, electronic stores and appliance stores to be able to find, you know, the right, uh, the right sort of washer and dryer. And we, we, Home Depot, Sears, you know, Lowe's. And Laura has, Laura, my wife, uh, has come with me and we're sort of trying to negotiate. And that's been, that's the whole mission of mine when I'm making a large purchase. It's basically to get the best bargain and the best deal that I can possibly get. So I'm talking to a guy and I'm like, well, tell me about this unit. And he's, well, does it have steam? Well, if it doesn't have steam, I'm sorry, I can't purchase it. Oh, does this dryer have wrinkle guard? Because the other one has wrinkle guard and it's cheaper. I mean, it's just ridiculous how I go back and forth, back and forth trying to find the absolute best deal with whoever is, 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 uh, is selling it to us. Now, I, what has washer and dryers and bargaining to do with uh, what we've just read tonight? Well, I think a lot, actually. Because I think tonight that we're going to see that we're going to see a picture of what is going on in this text that God is being bargained with by a man named Micah. That Micah is trying to get the best deal, right? To minimize cost and to maximize benefits, right? And he's trying to do that, not with a fellow man or person, but he's trying to do it with Yahweh, the God of Israel. And it's very interesting to see how this uh, flows out in the text that we're going to look at tonight. But I think lest you think that that's something disconnected, and lest you think that's something that I would never wrestle with, I think that if we were honest for just a moment, we would see this to be true in our own hearts. That you, that me, whether we realize it or not, are skilled and experts at trying to bargain with God. And I want to take a look at that tonight. And so tonight, we're going to kind of head, watch underneath three, three main headings. We're going to look at it. The, I've alliterated tonight. I can't believe that I have done that. But I've got, I got short on topics. So here it is. The pattern of bargaining, the problem of bargaining, and then lastly, we're going to look at the purpose of bargaining here hear from this text. Now, let's take a look, first of all, at this point, the pattern of bargaining. But as I try to say every week, here is what my hope is for you tonight. That you would hear from this text, these amazing news that God in Christ loves you and delights in you if you're in Him. That He showers out His mercy on you. And that it brings Him great joy to do that for you. That is my hope for you tonight, that in the face of whatever you're up against and whatever your story is, wherever you are coming from, that you would begin to see a glimpse of God's amazing grace for you tonight from Judges chapter 17. So let's just jump right in. Let's take a look at the pattern of bargaining. And what do I mean when I say the pattern of bargaining? Well, here's what I mean. Let's take a look. 
You'll see it there in verse, in really kind of the first six verses there, but let me catch you up a little bit on this. Last week when we read Judges chapter 16, we said the last judge, Samson, completed that downward spiral, that downward cycle in the book. And what you need to know is, is that Samson marks the chronological end of the story of Judges, yet there are five more chapters in the book, 17, 18, 19, 20, 21. Those two, those five chapters really tell two stories, one that we're going to look at this week and one that we're going to look at next week. But those two episodes, those two stories, really fit up into that narrative that we've already read. So does that make sense? This is not after the fact. This is happening in, and the, the narrator has pulled it out to not disrupt the flow, and now we're going to hear more about these events now. And these really are pictures, y'all, of the time uh, of the judges. We said here in this text that it says that in those days there was no king in Israel, verse 6, and that everyone did what was right in his own eyes. In other words, this story and next week really is a picture of the conditions in Israel, how bad things really were, and what they actually needed a good king for. So you have to keep that in mind as we take a look at that. So let's jump in to this text. There's a man named Micah. He was from Ephraim. He basically hears his mother utter a curse that somebody has stolen her 1,100 pieces of silver. For whatever reason, the text doesn't tell us, Micah fesses up. He's taken the loot, okay? And so he goes to his mom and he's like, you know all that cash that you were missing? Well, I'm the one that took it and he gives it back. Now she says, to, she says in that basically, oh, this is so good. God bless my son. Thank you for that. And then she takes... Uh, the 200 pieces of silver and pays a craftsman to carve out a wooden image and then to overlay it with silver. Now that little image is basically, if, if that language image is new for you, think a little statue, okay? Wood covered with silver and it was an object of wor worship that the scriptures would call an idol. And so Micah takes this idol and he places it in his house with his other household gods there in the shrine. Now, what do I mean when I talk about the pattern, the pattern of bargaining? Here's what I want you to see first from the text. That Micah is running roughshod over what God has revealed his people, how his people ought to live. Meaning, he has alternate gods in his house. That he has a shrine set up for worship, which is only supposed to happen at the temple. He has household gods all around his house that he's bowing down to and worshiping. He has an ephod, which was basically alone for the, was supposed to be used as a garment, like a shirt, to be used only for the great high priest of Israel, not for use of anywhere else. This guy is in massive violation of the way that God's people were called to worship and to live in the Old Testament. So you just have to get a sense of that. And here's what's interesting. You have to begin to see that also this pattern of bargaining is met by this picture of externalism. Now, what do I mean by externalism? I mean this, that Micah believes that if he can just check off all of the right religious boxes, that God will finally be happy with him. Look down in verse 13. It's that last verse there. It says this. He says, after now getting a priest, right? We, we know that this priest has come in, this Levite, who we'll look at in just a moment. But that Micah now says in verse 13, Now I know that the Lord will prosper me because I have a Levite as a priest. Let me put a point on it. Here's the way Micah's thinking. If I can check off all the boxes, I'll finally be able to secure the prospering from God. Does that make sense? 
And what externalism is, it's just it's outward forms. It's outward obedience. It's outward, it's outward box checking, if you will, devoid of the heart itself. Here's why this is so important. When God calls people to himself, it's not as though external performances are bad. They're not. They're not bad in and of themselves. They are bad by themselves because when God calls his people into covenantal worship, to worship of him, it's always meant to be with the heart engaged. And so what Micah is doing is he giving us this picture of the pattern of bargaining, this way to bargain with God, and it's the shell of external religion. Does that make sense? That's what he's getting at. Now you may say, what's the big deal there? Why would this matter? What has this any relevance for us? Well, I think it does in just a moment, but a quick illustration to help, help highlight what I mean by this externalism, this outside way of doing religion. Uh, Harry Potter fans uh, in the room, a few, okay, a few snaps. I heard it back there, maybe not all of you. Uh, some of you will remember the polyjuice potion. The polyjuice potion, this is where if you drink it, you become like somebody else, right? So I don't know if you know this, but I was able to find, um, maybe from the annals of Hogwarts history, the recipe for the potion called Polyjuice Potion. And let me just read it to you real quickly so that you know what all goes into it, okay? First of all, um, you need lace wing flies that have been stewed for 21 days. Second of the sixth, uh, the seventh ingredients, you need some leeches. You obviously needed powdered bicorn, not unicorn horn. You need it to be powdered form, of course. You're going to need knot grass. You're also going to need some flux weed, but it has to be picked in the middle of the full moon. As you well know, I'm sure you know this. Also, you're going to need some shredded bloom slaying skin. I don't know what that is. Good luck finding it. And then lastly, as everyone knows, you're going to need a bit of the person that you want to turn into. But it's usually a piece of hair. It could be a fingernail. It could be something else. It's got to be something from another person that you want to do. And when you put all of that together, boom, and you drink the potion, you will become like somebody else. Y'all, I think that what Micah is telling us and what you and I are so prone to is that we think that God operates like a polyjuice potion. That if we can just everything right, right? If we can nail everything down just perfectly, then God will what? Well, he'll have to deliver. He'll have to give us what we, we've put in. You put the money in the vending machine, the vending machine needs to put out, right? And the idea here is what Micah is telling us and what the scripture is telling us is that that is utterly, that is utterly foreign to the way the God of the Bible works. Many of you might remember Jesus's own words from the chapter, 13th chapter, from the 15th chapter of Matthew. If you have a Bible, I invite you to turn there. If not, I'm just going to read it real quickly. Matthew chapter 15, Jesus says this about the religious leaders. And that's telling, friends. It's telling who he says this to. But he says this. He says, these people or this people honor me with their lips in verse 8, but their heart is, from, is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the children of men. The commandments of men. And the idea there is that Jesus is very concerned with this external form of religion. Now, I just want to drive this home. What, is, what am I getting at about the pattern of bargaining? I want you to see, I want you to see the danger and yet the attractiveness of empty external forms. External forms devoid from the heart are really, really, really dangerous when it comes to worship. 
Let me see if I can explain. Some of you may think, well, yeah, I was baptized as a kid. Or I was baptized as as an adult. And so there's an external sign, right? But that could be utterly devoid of true substance. It can be an external shell. Others of you might say, oh yeah, I mean, when I became a Christian, I walked an aisle, right? But where is the heart? Is the heart connected to that? Is there something going on outside of a mere profession? And some of you may say, oh yeah, well, you know, I prayed a prayer when I was 10 years old to receive Christ. Well and good, that's great. Those are wonderful things. But where is the heart? Is this just a pattern of bargaining, right? If I get the potion right, God will be bound to bless me. This is really a big picture, y'all, because I think that many of us begin to see this like this. If I begin to do the right religious activities, then God has to put out for me. And I want to show you that that that, that that's not the way that God works. God will not be bargained with. He will be put in no man's debt. And He will certainly not be controlled. And so I just kind of want to ask you tonight, where in your life might you examine your own heart and rhythms of life to say, where am I trying to get God to do me good by the way that I'm living my life? And is it devoid of a real heart trust, a real trusting from the heart in who God is and what He has done for us? That's a key question that I think that this book in Judges chapter 17 is getting us to ask and examine. This pattern of bargaining, the idea of mere externalism. That mere word is mere is important. There's nothing wrong with being baptized and walking down an aisle in the whole nine yards. It's when it's devoid. It's when it's merely that. You have to hear what I'm saying on that. Does that make sense? The externalism. Secondly, let's take a look as well at this picture of the problem, the problem of bargaining. Well, you might remember in, from the text, you saw it there in, chapter, in verses 7 through 12, what happened. A Levite from the city of Bethlehem begins to leave. Now, Levites are important in the biblical story because out of the 12 tribes, they were the one tribe that were to be set apart for the, the carrying out of God's worship. That nobody else could perform worship except Aaron, and he, would, he, was, from the, he was in Levi, his sons, And the Levites were the only people commissioned, ordained, authorized, you might say, to be able to carry out worship in the temple. But Mike is on to this. He knows, what great fortune. I can't believe this. I got a shrine. Now I got a Levite who's in my own backyard. This is wonderful. Hey, Levite, why don't you come live with me? You can be my own priest. I'll, in fact, ordain you, and then I can have it all. I got the shrine. I got the sacrifices being offered up by the priest. I got the little gods I can bow down to. You begin to see the picture that's being formed here. And this is an utter, utter decay. This is a bad spiritual moment in the life of God's people. Why? Because if you know your Ten Commandments, you know the second one is what? You shall have no carved images, no graven images in front of me. And that's what's happening. But you're also seeing a violation as well of what God has laid out for his people to do. They are never supposed to do so. This is, this is heinous in God's sight because a, a, a man set apart to conduct the worship of God's people for to bless them and to bring their praises unto him has now been privatized been taken out and been made solely into the house of the individual. 
I hope you'll begin to see then the real problem, the real problem here, the main idea, the problem really is, is that ultimately when this happens, you begin to see a picture, a picture of the real problem in the text. Let me see if I can specify. The real issue, y'all, is that a little idol has been made and that is breaking the second commandment and it, it crushes, it crushes God's heart when that happens. Why? Let me think if I can explain it this way. Whenever there is an idol made, it can never, ever, ever capture the real essence of what God is. Does that make sense? You're always going to cut off some component. Think about it like this. Even if you had a little idol that was this big or something, and you were bowing down to it and you're worshiping and saying, this is Yahweh, this is the God of Israel, you have localized just in that space right there what God is. And the Bible reveals that God is, is eternal, that he's omnipresent. How could he be localized right here? And so now you've cut off some of his attributes. Well, you might make a real beautiful idol. I'm sure that was really pretty. It was overlaid with silver. It was probably gorgeous, right? So you get a component in the picture of the beauty of God, but a beautiful idol can tell us nothing about his justice. It can tell us nothing about his holiness. And the reason that carved images or that idols were forbidden was because just of that, you cut off some component of what God was really like. You see, that's always the problem with bargaining, that when you make an, eye, when you make an idol in that way, you're always, always, always cutting off some, some part of who the real God is. Let me see if I can illustrate this just for a moment. I think this makes a lot of sense when you think about marriage and getting married. Now, I don't know if that's many of you in this room. It might be a few, but um, I can tell you this happened to me in my own life when I, was, when I began to date and uh, was engaged to Laura. Um, when you get married, you no longer get to live just for yourself. I mean, the late night, like two o'clock, nobody really cares where I am, sort of that, you know, things that you can do when you're a college student all day long. If you try to pull that junk in marriage, you're going to hear about it. Your spouse is going to be like, well, where were you? You didn't even tell me where you were at. You know what I mean? And it's not like they're being cruel. It's that they love you and they care for you and they're concerned for your well-being, right? And so there's this, you have to in some ways, here it is, right? You are accountable now to your spouse. And here's the thing, that you may not like that at all. Chances are you might actually not like it a lot. But whether you like it or not is really irrelevant. Because what matters is that this is the way that marriages properly function. That they're all about this mutual care and concern, this mutual accountability for the other. And you're always giving up some part of yourself for the sake of that marriage and that relationship. Why do I say all this? Here's what I mean. If, if, if that's the case, you have to see that there is something that you don't agree with or like. Does that make sense? You may not like that rule or that standard. And you may go, I don't like it. I can't stand it. And I go, great, well and good. But if you submit to that thing, that rule or that agreement that you make, you may not like it at first, but it will cause your marriage, your relationships, to grow and to flourish. It always works that way. But if you live apart from that or in denial of it, the relationship will eventually become very strained and difficult. Why would we think that it would be any different with the God of the universe? If he says that life must go this way for you and me, even if we don't like it, it really is an invitation. Hear me. An invitation into real intimacy, knowing and being known by God. And y'all, this is huge. 
This is huge. That's why the author Tim Keller, Pastor Tim Keller, can point out that when we have a God of our own making, in distinction from how the Scriptures reveal Him, we're one, never going to have a God that can really contradict us at all. Do you all see what I'm saying there? You're never going to have a God that ever contradicts you. And secondly, you're never really going to have a real relationship with the real and living God. Here's what I just want to ask you. When you read the Bible, do you read of a God who can contradict you in certain areas of your life? Is there a God that you read of that can contradict you in certain areas of your life? Because it's then and only then that you begin to see the real problem with bargaining. You see, you can say, well, I don't like that, so I'm just going to pick and choose whatever I want, whatever feels right in the moment, right? It's subjective. But this, like, for example, right? Well, you know, I don't want to do X, Y, or Z. I've prayed about it, and I don't like it, and God's given me peace about it. Well, great. I'm glad that you prayed about it. But whether you like it or not, again, it's irrelevant because it's what God speaks. And we've been to Him. And it's always in the midst of bargaining, bargaining with God, trying to do business with Him, work a deal, work a trade with Him, right? That the problem begins to surf, surface in that way. Um, I think this is really important, and it's, it's very, very practical. You might, you might um, think that, that, that this idea is very narrow-minded, that it's very closed off, but I'm just trying to tell you, any true relationship always has some part where you bend. Why would we think it would be any different with God? Does that make sense? That's what, that's, and I would say this, that if you have a God, and you read the Scriptures, and you have a God that actually disagrees with you, you're dealing with a God not of your own making that you're dealing with a God that really exists. And that's profoundly encouraging. Here's the one thing that I like to kind of see and, uh, and say about this. Here's the point. Bargaining with God is always problematic because it creates a God in our own image. Indeed, as the playwrights Lee and Lawrence once wrote in the play Inherit the Wind, they wrote that God created man in his own image, and man, being a gentleman, returned the compliment. You see that? Returned the compliment. God's just like me. Micah thought that if he could just get the magic right, if he could just do the right thing, then everything would work out perfectly for him. But as the text will show, it never would. That brings us lastly to the purpose of bargaining. The purpose of bargaining. You'll see it really kind of localized in verse 13. Did you see it there? Then Micah said, Now I know that the Lord will prosper me because I have a Levite as a priest. Give me a moment. What do I mean by the purpose? The purpose of bargaining. I want you to see the reason, the goal behind why Micah was doing what he was doing. You can see it there in verse 13. It was to be prospered by the Lord. Literally, the Hebrew there says this. It says that I would be done, done good unto, right? That God would do good to me. That's another way of, of expressing it. And I think that's key because in all of this, we're seeing the very heart or the motivating principle that Micah is performing and trying to acquire for himself these things. He's trying to get God to bless him. Now, this is interesting. I want you to think with me on this for a moment. Why, why would Micah need to do the potion, right? The box is checked. Why would he need to do that in order to get God to bless him? Why do all of this to get God to bless him? What does that presuppose about God's 
disposition towards Micah. Does that make sense? The reason? It ain't good. There's distance. There's not blessing. The God is not disposed to doing that. And so Micah thinks what? If I can perform my religious duties, then I can get him to bless me. And that's really the whole purpose. And I think that's really, really important for you guys to see. That what, what Micah was after was the real blessing of God. But here's what I want you to understand about what the Bible tells us, about what the Scriptures in their full testimony tell us about the way that blessing is secured from God. It doesn't come by the way that Micah expects it. It does not cr- come by working. It cannot come by us performing religious duties and ceremonies. It only, only, only comes one way. It comes as a gift. It comes as a gift. That God blesses, that God does good to people, not on the basis of their religious works or performances, but out of God's very own heart on the principle of grace. And that's what this is trying to show us. It's trying to show us over and over again in the book of Judges that God, when when people's hearts are turned away from them, that God always runs, that God always rescues His people in the midst of their sorrow, and in the midst of their sin. And so the real picture is, is not that God, that Micah has to do something to make God disposed well unto him. But the promise of the testimony of the Scripture is that that relationship can in fact be restored. But it's not Micah doing it. It's who doing it? It's God doing it. It's God giving us a way for us to be made right with Him. And so I like to put it like this. You saw it there in the text. Now I know that the Lord will prosper me because I have a Levite as a priest. And if you know anything about your Bible, if you know anything about the story of redemption, there actually was another priest who would bring blessing. But he would not be from the tribe of Levi. He would be from the tribe of Judah. The lion of the tribe of Judah. His name was Jesus. And he was the one that would come and he would be the one that met, right? That met all that God had required. And in his doing, in his religious service, in what he had done, God would be now disposed on account of Jesus' work. Not yours, not mine, not Micah's. God would now be disposed to bless that God will be now disposed to doing good. This is the real promise of what He gives us. Micah needed another priest, y'all, to secure his blessing. And it wasn't going to be from the tribe of Levi, but from the tribe of Judah. Jesus is the one who made a deal, as it were, a covenant within the Trinity that He would give His life in exchange for ours. And y'all, I want you to see that that is what this Good Friday Two days, what Good Friday is all about. Jesus giving His life for ours. That Jesus taking the punishment for our sin and we receive the prospering of God. That Jesus is the one who bore the punishment for for yours, for my selfishness. For your heart being turned away from God. And Jesus comes and He pays for that. And He does so because He delights in us, because He treasures you, 
because he wants intimate fellowship with you. Jesus is the one who bore that selfishness and pulling for pulling all the stunts that Micah did that you and I do. And we receive perfect, intimate fellowship with God. I need to land the plane. And on the night that Jesus was arrested, he was praying. And John, in his gospel, tells us that Jesus again, right before he was arrested, spent time with his father in prayer. He prayed for many things that night. But I think one of the things that's most impressive to me, one of the things that's moved me the most through the years, has been this particular thing, that he prays for future believers. 2,000 years ago, Jesus was praying for you, TCU student. He had you on his mind. He was praying for you before the Father. And what was it that he was asking the Father for? This comes straight out of John chapter 17, verse 26. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known. Here it is. For what purpose? That the love with which you, Father, have loved me may be in them and I in them. What is Jesus praying? He's saying, I want you, I want you, I want you to know, I want you to know that the same love that the Father has for the Son and the Father has for the Holy Spirit and the Son has for the Father and the Spirit and the Spirit has for the Son and for the Father. That inner Trinitarian love that's existed for all eternity and that will go on forever. Jesus is praying what? That it may be in them. That it may be in you. And so now that when God looks at you, when the Father looks at you, He loves you in the exact same way that the persons of the Trinity love each other. What? That's insane. And yet, that is what Jesus was praying. And it is, dear friends, what is true for you tonight if you know Jesus. You see, He is the one that came and made the ultimate bargain, as it were, the ultimate covenant with God. He gave up His life that you might keep yours. It leads the great Baptist preacher, Charles Spurgeon, to say this. I'm going to read it in its entirety. It's so beautiful. The grandest fact under heaven is this, that Christ, by His precious blood, does actually put away sin. And that God, for Christ's sake, deals with men, you and me, on terms of mercy, forgives the guilty, and justifies them, not according to anything that He sees in them, because there's nothing there, or foresees will be in them, because we'll never be good enough, but according to the riches of His own mercy. Hallelujah. Amen, dear friends. That is the great promise that comes to us in the gospel. Here's what I want you to see. Would you dare to believe tonight that Jesus has done it all and that because of him, you get it all, no matter what your story is, no matter how busted you think you are, no matter how much you think you have blown it. If Judges teaches us anything, it is that there is more grace in Jesus. Listen to me, that there is more grace in Jesus than there is sin in you. There is more grace in Jesus than there is sin in you. And His grace blasts away all of your selfishness, all of your pride, 
all of your hard-heartedness towards God, He blasts it away in His mercy and grace. And that's good news for every single one of us tonight. So do you believe it? Would you receive it? Would you own it tonight for the first time, for the thousandth? It's on offer. Take it, believe, and live. Let's pray.